I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. There's a lot of talk about citizens' assemblies these days. Some people say, as the UK flounders to try and find a way through the wreckage of Brexit, that it should have done citizens' assemblies in advance of any vote. Some say they should happen now, to decide the next steps forward. Citizens' assemblies are a powerful tool for hearing the thoughts of a population without the filter of political interference, lack of understanding and the polarity that has been driven by social media and surveillance capitalism. But what are they? And how might citizens' assemblies be a vital tool for creating the spaces that allow imagination back into our public life? One of the best examples of the use of citizens' assemblies is in Ireland. So I spoke to Clodagh Harris at University College Cork, who was involved in the first pilot, We the Citizens, in the subsequent Irish Convention on the Constitution, and in the more recent Citizens' Assembly to find out more. I started by asking her how the assemblies in Ireland came about, and how they work. So I kind of started there with the We the Citizens. So that was a pilot citizens assembly and it was essentially an academic led experiment. And the part, it emerged, I suppose, in 20, it took place in June 2011. Um, and you'll find its report online. It's a really good report. Um, if you have, I'm sure you've already seen it. Um, so anyway, that was pretty much the brainchild, of, I suppose, Professor David Farrell in UCD. Um, as you know, in Ireland, and I suppose, post-2008, but around 2010-2011, we faced severe economic and financial crisis. And, I mean, the country thought a new, a relatively new sovereign state was brought to its knees and had to rely on the IMF and others to bail us out of the situation. And there were a lot of calls at the time for reform. And one of the areas for, there was, a, one of the areas identified for reform was our political system and the need for political reform because it felt that our political parties, our politicians, our institutions have been asleep at the wheel and, and perhaps a little too cosy as well in the relationships. Um, I'm, I'm understating that <laughs> a lot. Far too cosy in some cases. Anyway, and also I suppose ideologically we bought into globalisation. We were very proud of the fact that we were always ranked, if not first, second in globalisation indexes. Um, we very much followed a light touch regulation approach. Anyway, so that there were calls coming from the side, from our side of the house, I suppose, political scientists saying the need for any discussion of political reform needs to look at, needs to be exclude, you know, doesn't, shouldn't look exclusively or come from exclusively politicians. It needs to involve the citizens directly. And one of the things was put, that was put out was this idea of a citizens assembly. Primarily, I suppose there are a few of us who are familiar with it and very much kind of advocates of it. And David Farrell himself had been involved as an expert um, in the British Columbians, so in the Canadian Citizens Assemblies, kind of founding father Citizens Assemblies. So that project got money from a philanthropy, Atlantic Philanthropies, um, and it essentially, because Irish, the Irish political system was a bit 
kind of kind of concerned, reserved at this idea of a citizens' assembly. Now, not all, but by and large, there's a bit of kind of resistance or concern about the risk involved, and this kind of sense that oh, Irish people couldn't possibly deliberate. You know, yes, the polite, civilized Canadians can manage that, but please don't ask Irish people to do it. And I suppose what essentially that project did was it proved Irish people could deliberate. So it was very much an academic project. The report is online and you see what they discussed and it showed that, yes, people could sit down <laughs> respectfully discuss issues and come to recommendations. So following on from that, as you know, there was the shock general election of 2011, this change in government, and all the parties in the run-up to that election had included some form of political reform in their manifesto, and most of them had referred to some form of citizens' assembly or kind of citizens' process, citizens-led process. So coming from the programme for government, from that Fine Gael Labour programme for government, was this idea of a convention on the Irish constitution. It wasn't clear at the outset what that would look like. Fine Gael were looking for it to be more like a traditional citizens' assembly where all, represent, all members were chosen randomly amongst from society or the citizenry. Um, Labour wanted something that also wanted something that kind of included civil society and political part, political representatives. So what you found with the Convention on the Constitution was you had this hybrid kind of body that was thirty three the thirty three of the ninety nine members were from political parties, north and south, and sixty six were randomly selected citizens. So stratified random sampling, so keeping an eye to gender, socioeconomic status, geography, etc. And it was given a very eclectic mix of things to look at, ranging from again you'll find it on the websites and then etc. Um, ranging from like reducing the voting age to looking at the electoral system to looking at the introduction of same sex marriage to removing the offence of blasphemy. Um, what was interesting about that process is that there's an awful lot of cynicism, particularly from kind of the commentary at those in the media in particular, um, you know, poly, you know, op-ed journalists um, towards it. But it actually, it, it, for, from very early on and very quickly, it seemed that the process was working well. Politicians were working well. The politicians, I suppose, was eye-opener for them because they were actually sitting at the tables. They were full, those who were there were full members. And he saw a number of historic decisions, recommendations coming from it. Those involved took the task very seriously. The first few reports were responded to quickly in the in the doll, but unfortunately, after a period of time, the responsiveness rate dropped. I suppose it's two. It's had a couple of achievements. Its first achievement was that historic referendum on marriage equality that came from a recommendation from that body. Um, but obviously, there were people campaigning for that for decades beforehand, and. That was that's what brought it onto the agenda. So you couldn't say that that was, con you know, totally a consequence of the assembly. But it certainly, you know, it brought. I suppose having this outside body brought a degree of um, independence to the decision and brought a kind of um, gave more momentum to it. Um, it also, I suppose, its legacy as well can be found in the Citizens' Assembly. So the success of the convention, particularly in persuading politicians that this could be done. Because those politicians who took part, if you go back to the Dáil debates on the floor afterwards, they all, you know, all of them from all the parties spoke very positively about, you know, the process and what could come from it. So I suppose we began to see buy-in from the political establishment. So you saw then in 2016 the creation of the Irish Citizens' Assembly, because one of the things that was being raised at the time, and again, I suppose arguably long overdue, was the need to repeal the 8th 
the Eighth Amendment to our Constitution, so that provision to permit uh, abortion in Ireland. Um, So that, again, this time, this Citizens' Assembly was more akin to what we would see in the Canadian system. It was 99 citizens, so no no politicians. And I think in some ways this was the politicians trying to remove themselves from a very sticky and potentially divisive issue. Um, I suppose that's particularly true for Fianna Gael, who's, as you know, our lead party, and they would have gone through a lot of internal divisions and lost members the last time this was discussed. Um, so really, but as part of the Citizens' Assembly, they didn't just look at repeal the 8th, they also looked, as as you know, at the whole issue of how to make Ireland a world leader in tackling climate change. To be honest, if we could just get in the world top 10, we'd be doing well. <laughs> but yeah, leaders could, and you know, I like the ambition of it. Um, so, and again, that, that process was a really, you know, initially it was envisaged that that would only take one weekend. And I don't know how you discuss something as substantial as climate change in one weekend, but that went over two weekends. The recommendation, the report that came from it is now currently being discussed in a joint Oireachtas committee. And they will report back on the 31st of January. So it'll be interesting to see what, what comes from, from that. So, so if I was a, um, if I was somebody who had been chosen as one of those ninety-nine people, or sixty-six, yeah. some of them had sixty-six, wasn't it? Yeah, the convention, the convention had sixty-six people. Yeah, and yeah. So, if I was one of those people, what would my experience have been? Your experience, I suppose. So. Um, you would have been chosen, you would have been invited to come along in advance of the weekend. Now, I wasn't one of them, so I'm trying to think from the other side. You would have received in advance of each weekend, you would have had received some briefing documents that would have been um, uh, prepared by experts in the area. You would have had your say, depending, the process has differed a little, but again, that information is all, particularly in the Citizens' Assembly, it's a re- that Citizens' Assembly website is a really handy resource for information. So you would have... Um, received short, accessible information from the experts in advance on the given topic. You would have arrived in the hotel on the Friday evening, um, you know, met by the team. You would have early on Saturday morning sat down. It varied a little bit from weekend to weekend, but the general program was that in the, on the Saturday morning, you would come in, you would look at the table plan, you would see which which table you were seated at, if you were a member of the Convention on the Constitution, you would be sitting there with a number of fellow citizen members and one or two politicians. There would be a facilitator and a note taker. So you'd sit down. Usually the morning sessions, but again, it varied a little bit from weekend to weekend, would be where some information was provided, whether it was from a legal perspective, medical, ethical, whatever, depending on the topic. And then there would be, that would break out then into small group small group discussions so um, and the opportunity to ask so the presentations plenary session of question and answer small group discussions still the opportunity to ask questions but to invite the expert over to your table so kind of that idea that there's an empty chair there the expert could slot in to provide further information if required and then usually there was I know at the convention there were feedback mechanisms during the day where we would take the note takers notes and feedback and after lunch what had been discussed in the different tables. That varied a little bit in the citizens assembly, but again, there were still those feedback mechanisms. And then usually 
on the Sunday, if it was if it, the topic was only given one one weekend, if there's only one weekend to a topic, which was the case mostly with the convention, not with the assembly. The assembly was better at allocating more time. Um, what you would find is on the Sunday, the they would the as a member you would come to your table and you would see a draft ballot paper, but it would only be a draft ballot paper, and you would discuss its content, um, its small group, then feedback and say, listen, so the ballot papers were all, an awful lot of deliberation went on on the ballot papers because the way both processes made decisions was by a majority decision. So, um, and so by majority decision, and we had... And kind of to recognise the, I suppose, formality of the process, there were ballot boxes, like the ones that we would normally have in our polling booths were there, polling stations. So that was very official looking and they were locked and and there were observers as well. So it was done, it was taken very seriously. Um, and I suppose so that's, that's really what your experience would have been. You would have been mixing a lot with your fellow members and, yeah. And were people, were people paid for their time? No, they weren't. Now, I personally have issues with that. I think they should be. But that wasn't the case. Certainly with the convention, that the convention ran, I think, something like nine weekends. And bearing in mind that people would usually spend at least one, if not two nights in a hotel, that would be covered. All their travel expenses would be covered. Um, so the convention ran, I think, nine weekends, seven regional meetings, plus whatever experts invited, etc., for under a million euro which was shoestring, really, when you consider the amount of work involved. When you consider the amount of actual people involved, um, an awful lot of, a lot of the convention work was actually done on goodwill. Most of us who worked at the convention did it for free. We're happy to do it for free. But the citizens should have been, I'm a firm believer, citizens should be paid. And also, in some cases, where some of the expertise that was given by some of the, you know, by some of the professions, um, particularly nowadays with early career, they should have been paid too, I, I think, or given something. Their expenses were paid and hotel was paid. But again, that's, that's my own personal opinion on the experts. Certainly the citizens, there are many of us um, in the field who would say that they should be given honoraria. And I know in a number of projects they are. Not, not a huge amount of money, but you know, if you want a diverse mix of people, you're asking people who are in precarious employment, which is very much the, the norm today and certainly more so the norm for there's a gendered aspect to that and there's an age aspect to that as well um and you're asking somebody to give possibly give up possibly a saturday job or the opportunity if they're on zero hour contracts for go hours you know it's there should be some kind of recompense and also recompense just because it's work they're actually working it's not jolly like yeah so if you weren't one of those people would you be how would you be able to contribute how would you know they were happening how would you be able to contribute or did they just happen and away somewhere and then they made a recommendation that's a really good question and again it comes back to the resources because often the advertising you know the money for advertising wasn't there but because they were obviously government sponsored and government led initiatives there would have been calls put out for submissions and they did again the submissions pages both the convention and the assembly are still live as far as i'm aware well you can't submit but you can see the submissions so they received a lot of public submissions um, they were live streamed. The plenary sessions were live streamed. Now, obviously, the small group discussions weren't, but they were. Um, they did 
at various times they got coverage in the media so I suppose you could have an awareness from that perspective but in terms of actually having input as an ordinary member I suppose it was through public submissions by and large. Also I think what was interesting about the Irish Irish versions of these assemblies is that there, were, there was space within these processes for relevant um, advocacy groups or civil society organisations to give expertise. So you found, like, for example, the National Women's Council gave, gave you know, were invited in to contribute to discussions, the Youth Council, Amnesty International, the churches. Um, so I suppose there were, these are other ways of making sure a diversity of perspectives were considered. But as an ordinary Joe Soap, unless you were randomly selected or you made a public submission, you wouldn't, yeah. Yeah. But it was I mean it was was covered in the newspapers a little. You might have heard that here in the UK we had a referendum a little while ago. Uh, uh, how could we have done that better? What would that have looked like if we had taken a more deliberative approach to such a to such a hugely complicated question? Yeah, I, I referendums referendums are work well if something can be reduced to a binary question, but most things can't be reduced to a yes or no. I mean, I suppose you could have had a multi multi option referendum. You could have had a commission perhaps checking the facts more of what was being said. But to be honest, we're all you know, Britain is not unique in that regard. Um, we have we face challenges all the time with referendums in Ireland. Referendums are a very blunt instrument. They can be a very blunt instrument. I think what's interesting is there are a couple of things. Um, it would have been useful to have had some, be some kind of citizens' assembly process that would have informed the debate or at least given recommendations and said, well, listen, actually, in or out might be too simplistic. What does out look like? Is it soft? Is it hard? Is it, you know, at least have a discussion around customs unions and also even have a discussion. I know now I'm Irish, so I'm coming from my perspective, but even recognition, the fact that there was a member state that could potentially have blocked you from leaving. And this is what's happening with the backstop. And like, anyway, so... Um, but like that's that should have been at least discussed. What people chose to do obviously was their own business, but it would have been a more informed decision. Um, and I, I think what's interesting is what they do in Oregon, that Citizens Initiative Review. Have you come across it, John Gastel's work? Where in other ways citizens initiatives, which are similar, again a very kind of can be a very blunt tool of direct democracy. Um and I don't want to be disparaging because I'm very much in favour of increased citizen engagement and direct democracy. Um, uh, what they do is in advance of an initiative, a vote, like a referendum on something, they create this kind of citizens panel to kind of debate the issue and spread out the information. So at least I suppose it would have been another source of hopefully relatively independent information because any of us who were following the Brexit campaign, like what the, the way in which the debate that preceded that vote, the quality of it was so poor. The factual, yeah. Anyway, yeah. No, it's. I I really feel. I, I feel. Have Have you come across the work of Alan Rennick? So Alan Rennick is in UCL, the Constitution in UCL, and Professor Graham Smith of Westminster Centre for Democracy in Westminster. Actually, you you really like his work. Um, because he also has a keen interest in participatory processes, deliberative processes, and environmental justice. Um, so they got money from the ESRC to hold a citizens' assembly on Brexit. Now it worked; it was it happened last year, so it worked from the premise that Brexit was a reality. But what should Brexit look like? 
Um, it's well worth, well worth reading their report. So if you just even Google them, um, I think they wrote an article on political, in political quarterly on it that's freely available, but they also have a report. And what's interesting is, is they show that they also, they did the random selection thing, but they wanted to make sure that they had a good, they had more leave than remainers in the group so that they couldn't be accused of bias. And that they wanted to, want to make it as scientifically rigorous as possible. Um, and they found that people by and large wanted a much softer version of Brexit that was being, than was being discussed. Mm-hmm. That when people sat down, those with different views, different backgrounds, that they, and they started to tease out what it meant, people wanted a more soft version. Um, how do you think that deliberative democracy pro- approaches like this help the imagination? How do they help us to uh, imagine the future in more positive ways? How do they create that space where the imagination is given some room to flourish? That's a really good question because I haven't, because I've been thinking, that's why when you were talking about imagination, I was thinking we really need to be good to get your views for our project because we're still discussing what we mean by imagination. And my understanding is just the lay person understanding one I've had for the last 20 years as a normal person, not an academic. Um, I think what they do is that they create a space for, for safe, respectful discourse. It doesn't mean you're going to hear things you agree with. It doesn't mean you're going to hear things you're comfortable with. Um, one of the powerful things, again, in the Irish processes is they've brought in the role of testimony. So they had people's experience of crisis pregnancy, both from a pro-life and a pro-choice perspective. They brought in the, the lived experience of having you know, being a gay person and, and unable to marry and being a gay person and being worried about your parents, your two moms who are not able to marry, and then how can you look after them in old age, etc. So I think what it does is it creates one of the challenges of modern life. And actually, it's interesting because I've, I've faced challenges with students yesterday. I've got a few kind of students at the moment in the class who are Trumpist and very alt-right. Um, I know and me challenging their views feeds into their narrative that there's this pro-feminist liberal elite narrative trying to just anyway it's very challenging it's very challenging um as a as a female um but that's 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 no harm it's good for me to encounter these views i'm just hoping that they're at least listening to some kind of so we don't nowadays we I suppose we all operate in bubbles we can choose what newspapers we can we read we can choose even what articles we don't even have to see what's on the front page Likewise, on Twitter, we can choose, or Facebook, we can choose who we follow, how we get our news. So we don't actually always hear different views. We don't necessarily hear different perspectives on things. And we're inclined, from what I can understand, to take things more personally because we become so isolated and individualized. And even maybe just even only maybe having discussions with people of the same color, socioeconomic class, etc. So we're not as mixed Social media has been great, but it's actually made us more isolated because we're not going out more into communities and meeting different people. But also, we can also choose very carefully whose opinions. I mean, we make sure that we're not going to hear something that's going to be offensive, you know, that we don't like. Not offensive, but that we just don't like, we don't agree with. So I think what they do do is they, in a safe, as I said, they first have to give us time because, again, I'm, you know, our lives seem to be busier. Now, we probably have made them busier through technology like this and things like this. But, you know, um, I, I personally got to the stage where I hate email, so I'm actually very happy to be chatting. Um, so, uh, so we, 
I suppose it gives us the time. I don't know about you, um, but even in my own life, the time to actually sit down and reflect and read and converse with people, um, people that I, that you wouldn't normally meet with. Um, you might be at, at times uncomfortable. You also get access to information, hopefully in a way that is accessible or should be. It should be accessible and it should be, again, kind of respectful and in a way that you can ask questions and you can challenge it. And yeah, so it's I think that's where it's surely good for imagination. Now, the only thing with these processes is you have to be careful. I, I'm one of the things I am always concerned about with the time constraints is that because they're trying to cram so much into one weekend or two weekends, that can have a negative impact on creativity. I suppose at least if something is over two weekends and you have this period of time and space between the two weekends, people have a chance to reflect, revise, come back with more ideas. But um, yeah, I think I think actually to be honest, anything that gives that takes us away from the our social media takes us away from how we're constantly bombarded and at least gives us an opportunity as people to chat to one another face to face and also an opportunity to perhaps hear things that we hadn't heard, whether it's actual facts, evidence-based scientific fact, or whether it's just people's lived experience of a piece of legislation or the lack of a piece of legislation. So my, so my last question is a question I've asked everybody that I've interviewed, which is a lot, quite a lot of people at this stage is that if you had been elected as the Prime Minister President of Ireland and you had run on a platform of Make Ireland Imaginative Again, that you had felt like the uh, the big challenges that the, uh, the country faces in terms of climate change and so on require a refocusing and a reprioritizing of imagination, that we focus so much on innovation that we've neglected imagination and this is not a problem that we can innovate our way out of, it's a problem we have to imagine our way out of. So we needed to reprioritize imagination in political life, in education, in every kind of aspect. What might you do in your first hundred days? I think I'd go to bed and sleep. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'd just go, oh, listen, thanks for electing me. I'm off home now. Wow, what a question. In my first hundred days, oh Jesus, I don't, I really don't know. In terms of imagining, I suppose what you'd have to start doing um, is, if you're looking at climate change, I think I heard a really interesting talk last week, and it was on the breaks that it was a, a, a professor, Professor Amanda, no, Amelia Hadfield, and she's in, I think in Canterbury, I think she's moving to Sussex. <coughs> And she actually got a very, very hard time in the Daily Mail for some of her views on Brexit, like she was personally targeted by them as an, a female academic. And it was just interesting. She was saying, how do you engage with some of these, like the, like the, the, the conversations I've been having with some of these students, how do you engage with this type of view, particularly a view that just shuts down? Because I think, and this is not time, perhaps, I think what she was saying, that people, the public, are sick of being preached at. We know certain things are not good. But we don't, you know, as with any of us, the news is very negative on a good day. And most of us try and either tune out or just think, oh, okay, it's those cranks or those lunatics or the, we, we, we put some awful label on those who have a different view and decide that they're just whatever. Um, I think what we, and she was saying that there needs to be more, that one of the ways you can challenge that is through comedy and through satire, that that's how you begin discussion. That's how you begin to challenge facts, because we are all entitled to our opinions. 
But like when it comes to there, but you can't dispute facts. You know that there there are times when you just have to recognize the role of the expert um, to a degree. You know what I mean? That doesn't mean you can't challenge their methods. You can't challenge maybe their policy solutions. But I think um, if I was in a hundred day, a hundred days, one part of me, if I had a hundred days, but this would be more benign dictatorship than democracy. So I'm not going to do this. Is I'd nearly shut down social media accounts. I think I'd give us all a break from bombardment. Not that I'm anti-social media. I think we are all guilty of just being constantly bombarded and actually we don't give ourselves time to think. I'd love to create creative spaces where we could be imaginative. Literally create a space. I don't know how you would do that. It could be a virtual space, so then you might need your social media. But I think if we could have, I know Michael D. Higgins has been very good at kind of opening up spaces for discussions and bringing ideas. And I think I think if you're a leader, I think that's the saddest part. Currently, I have a very small management role. I'm head of our department. And what I've noticed is, is that my energy is going to things like office space, allocation of office space. This is the equivalent of Armageddon <laughs> in our place. So, um, but like all room for thought about anything academic or creative. It's just like it's gone. The time for it, the space in my head is kind of gone. It's been shoved out by something else. And I think that's when I think about modern leaders, I think they're so busy managing. They're not actually leading. So I think sometimes it's nice just to have the space for ideas. People don't need to agree with your ideas, but like even just a, literally a discussion, a, a, a space for a discussion. What that looks like, I do not know. I don't know whether that looks like something. People always go, oh, we'll go to the young people and we'll have a poster competition. And you're thinking, OK, we're going to dump all this crap plus the responsibility and the conversation on young people. I think there should be conversations. There should be ways in which you can fund conversations or fund projects, whether it's through men's sheds, whether it's through first time mothers who are having challenges with breastfeeding, even or like you should, they should be challenging. They should be you know, climate change issues. You need to be talking to parents. You need to be talking to particularly first time parents who are seriously traumatized by the experience or, you know, but parents, because again, they're particularly anybody who's at home all the time. They have the heating on all the time. They, they're caring. They're worried about the next generation and what can be achieved. That's where you begin. I think my sense would be I would literally go straight out into the community. I would make money available for different projects, whether it's meetings, whether it's kind of art installations, whether it's small films, um, whether it's participatory theatre. I'm a huge fan of participatory theatre and forum theatre. I think they can work really, really well. Um, and to start engaging very much at the local level with the view to trying to so start to come up with ideas locally. I mean, obviously, they're not going to solve the global problem. But I suppose if we start to think and act locally and see that one small change that we can make, it can have some, some mean, some difference. And I think also to engage, I suppose, if I were a leader, this is where I, this is one of the things I would do. I would move away from putting all the onus on the consumer. Because at the moment, it's all like, oh, you consume too much. You consume too much energy. You're driving your car too much or whatever. There's very little kind of debate about what about the large meat processing companies or the other lobbying groups who are using an awful lot more energy. And I'd love to have a debate and a vision that was more, I like Jamal Ali and those with kind of 
kind of energy citizenship as opposed to energy, you know, the active consumer, you know, the active citizen, but not just the active citizen, like I suppose you'd need to sit down and look at a set of values. So a lot of this is very ideological. To be honest, this is all ideological. Part of our biggest problem is that everything is premised on growth, as you mentioned, and growth comes at a huge cost. In Ireland, we are obsessed with growth. We're not alone, but we are very obsessed with growth. And the really sad part is that growth has led to more social injustice and energy injustice. So we're looking at very, yeah, anyway, sorry. So I have to do an awful lot in 100 days, but I think hopefully ideologically, I'm hoping that I'd be starting in a good place. Ideologically, I'd like to have a conversation about compromise and values and what is it as Irish people. We we talk about being green. We value having our green spaces and our fields and our green butter and our cattle and all this. But really, what does that look like? One parting shot, sorry, this that occurred to me was we need to listen more. We've all become very good at talking and I'm very guilty of this myself. But I think that's one of the biggest problems in modern life is we stopped listening. <laughs>